The topic today is out of the book of Genesis. It's called, this is a long topic, this is the world's longest title. The Preacher's Wife in a Harem. The man who became a father when he was a hundred and the woman who became a mother when she was 90. A family feud that happened 4,000 years ago that is still causing trouble in the mystical Middle East and costing Americans billions of dollars. The most expensive family feud. And this is still the title. The day God told his prophet to kill his son. These are amazing stories from the past. And so today, this is Genesis Continued. I'd like you please to take your Bible today and turn to the first book in the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. And we've had a terrific lot of rain here in Southern California. And in spite of the rain, I'm glad to see so many people here at church. Because in Southern California, when it rains, it's such a rare thing that people wonder what's happening and they stay home. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. For a start, today I'm going to speak from Genesis 20, 21, and 22. So Genesis chapter 20, this is the continuation, and I last spoke about the book of Genesis about six months ago, but this is a part of the series, in spite of it all. Genesis 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, it's the desert, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Gerar is a fertile valley just south of Gezer. It's famous in antiquity as a grain growing area. Even though the whole area is very barren, this is a particularly fertile area. And Abraham here repeats what he did 20 years ago, 20 years previous to this new set of circumstances. You'll remember when he went down into the land of Egypt, because his wife was so attractive, he said to her, say that you are my sister, which was a half-truth. And 20 years have gone by, and a lot of things can happen in 20 years. And one of the things that happens is, he forgets the blunder of the past. And so he says to this woman, say, you are my sister, because she is so beautiful. And she was 90 years of age. How are you feeling, Alice? <laughs> Last night, as I was walking, working on this talk, and yesterday, and during this week, I asked myself the question, was it the good country living? Was it the goat's milk? And the yogurt? And the beans? And the dates, she was 90 years of age and could turn heads. Now this man Abimelech, in fact it may not be his name, it could be a title like Pharaoh, because he's mentioned a number of times 
and other people are called by the same name. Abimelech, it could be a title like Pharaoh. Abimelech takes one look at this 90-year-old woman and is smitten. And he takes her into his harem because he believed that Abraham was her brother. Let me say a few things about polygamy. You read about polygamy all the way through the Bible, particularly, of course, the Old Testament. You'll find that David had many wives, so did Solomon. Abraham had his share of wives too. You also read in the Bible, and the Bible does not ordain it, but the Bible does condone it in the Old Testament. God did not ordain polygamy or slavery, which is another custom which is practiced in the Bible. But it is very clear in the scriptures that the Bible, because of the darkness of the times, condoned these practices. And therefore, let me say this to you, because this is very important, just because people in Bible times, and just because Bible people did certain things, it doesn't make it right. You read in the, in the Bible of people doing certain things and people say, well that's an excuse for me to do it. But just because Bible people did it doesn't make it right. And just because the Bible apparently condones some things, it doesn't make it right. A tremendous case has been made for slavery because of the teachings of the Bible or rather because of the practices of Bible characters who acted outside of the mind of God and so Sarah because of her silence don't just blame the man because of her husband and because of herself she finds herself in a harem when she's a very young 90 years of age. Would you please notice verses 3 to 16? But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live but if you do not return her you may be sure that you and all yours will die early the next morning Abimelech summoned all his officials and when he told them all that had happened they were very much afraid then Abimelech called Abraham in and said what have you done to us why have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. 
Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, the not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. You notice the words, what he says? I'm giving this to your brother. I wonder how Abraham felt. Seems clear that even the best people make mistakes, doesn't it? Was Abraham a practicing liar? If he was, there's no hope for any of us. I don't believe he was a practicing regular liar. But 20 years previously, when he looked at Pharaoh, he told a half-truth, which of course was a full lie. Because half-truths are full lies. But he wasn't a regular practicing liar. He stumbled and slipped under pressure like lots of us in different areas. That's why the Bible says there is none righteous, no not one. There is only one person who never slipped and fell whatever the circumstances and that's Jesus our Lord. But Abraham, the father of the faithful, the mighty prince of God, under pressure, made a mistake. There is a book that every person ought to read if you can take it, advertised widely. It's probably the most scientific sociological report in the history of America concerning our morals and our values. And it maintain, the book is called The Day America Told the Truth. It maintains that 90% of us in this part of the world, in North America, are habitual liars. Not a slip up here and there, but regular liars. I would want, by the grace of God, to be a man who belongs to the 10%. I would want a congregation whose elders, every person in the church, belongs to the splendid 10%. What's the difference between a believer and a non-believer as far as slipping into sin is concerned? Is there a difference? Yes, there is. Do believers slip into sin? Yes, they do. The Bible says they do. You do. You do. I do. 
But the difference is the difference between a pig and a lamb. When a pig finds a cesspool, the pig gets in it and wallows. And every pig that goes past, the pig says, come in and wallow with me. But when a lamb gets his foot in the cesspool, he jumps out and rushes off for cleansing. Abraham was a lamb, but he slipped. Lying never brings good. Beverly spoke about this in her excellent talk. Abraham's lie placed, and her lie placed Sarah in moral jeopardy. Also, humanly speaking, it placed the plan of redemption in jeopardy. Did you know this was the time when God was preparing for Abraham to be the father of Isaac and Isaac to be born of the womb of Sarah? But if this had finished its logical conclusion, Isaac would have had a different father. And his name would have been Abimelech. And Satan was working to thwart the divine plan because through Isaac came the Messiah. My friend, never lie. Suffer pain. Suffer whatever. But don't lie. Ninety percent of us habitually lie. Hate lying. What a privilege it is to meet a person who will sign, no, doesn't need to sign a contract, doesn't need an attorney, but who says, shake hands. I've told you, I can't go back on my word. Such a person, my friend, is a man after God's own heart. And so, this chapter here talks about a good man who stumbles, but a good man who was saved by God's amazing grace. Please look at Genesis chapter 21. God is sort of patient with us, isn't he? Genesis 21, and if you want God to be patient with you, you better be patient with me and everybody else. Genesis 21 verses 1 and onwards. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. <laughs> and she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I born him a son in his old age. Now this birth, my friend, of course, was not a virgin birth. But in a sense, it was like our Lord's birth because it was a miracle. And he was to be the father of our Lord. 
long way down the line, but he was the father of the chosen people. And so Abraham is a hundred, and Sarah is ninety, and they're laughing and they're laughing because they got here a little baby boy. Isn't that something to laugh at when you're a hundred? Just think of it. Don't think of it. A hundred and a baby. You know what the word Isaac means, don't you? It means he laughs. There's laughter. It is good to laugh, isn't it? The Bible is filled with laughter. And so now here people who had gone through a, a rough time together are now laughing. Getting up at two in the morning to feed a baby and they're still laughing. This was a miracle and a notable miracle. Let me talk about miracles. This is just a little aside now. Let me talk about miracles. This is a miracle. People come to me continually and they say, the Bible is full of supernatural events. The Bible is full of miracles. And that is why they say, we ought to have more miracles today, we ought to have more healings, and so forth. I've done some study on this. I'm amazed to tell you today, I'm personally amazed to tell you, that the Bible is not full of miracles. Miracles are few and far between. Are you listening to me, my Pentecostal friends? God uses them sparingly, and only at certain times of crisis, the rest is pretty ho-hum. Think of the miracles in the Bible. Creation, the great miracle. Then you come thousands of years. You don't read of any miracles between creation and the flood. That was a negative miracle. But the saving of Noah, that was a miracle. But you've got thousands of years there. There were no miracles. And then you have the calling of the chosen people. Listen to this. This is going to help you a lot. You have the calling of the chosen people. Abraham was the father of the faithful. And so God starts things off with a bang. A baby when you're a hundred. Then you come another 400 years. You don't read of any outstanding miracles in that period. You read of the providential leading of God, as we're going to read about next week. But there's nothing, there's no great thunder and lightning and anything else until you come to the Exodus. And now God is raising up his people to take them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So you have a bunch of miracles for a few weeks. And then you have hundreds and hundreds of years go by, and no miracles, my friend, until the plan of redemption is under threat. There's a time of national apostasy, and God raises up a man whose name is Elijah the Tishbite. And then Elisha, and you have a, a burst of miracles again. And then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years go by, and you come to Daniel and the plan of redemption again is being thwarted by the great deceiver. And there's a man in Babylon and three young men. And God saves them in the fire and he saves the other man in the lion's den. But remember, you're talking there about years and years and years, decades, when people walk by faith and not by sight. 
And then you come to the greatest era in the history of the world, the raising up of the kingdom of God, and Jesus comes. And the Son of God comes down to this earth, and God turns on the afterburners to lift the ship into space. So you have a few years of miracles. And then Pentecost comes. And there's a burst again to get the church a little further into orbit. But when the church is flying high in orbit, God says, turn off the afterburners. And so, when you read the writings of St. Paul, who was a great miracle worker, he says towards the close of his ministry, Trophimus, I have left sick at Miletus. He couldn't heal him. You read that in 2 Timothy. Trophimus, I have left sick at Miletus. No faith healing there. That's 2 Timothy 4.20. And then even the greatest of the healers and the greatest of the apostles, the first of the apostles, has an infirmity. We believe he had bad eyes. That's why he writes, see what large letters I'm writing to you. He says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me because he had bad eyesight. And three times he begged God to work a miracle. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Was Paul's faith weak? No, God had a better plan. That's why people get cancer and they're not healed. The best of the saints. So do not always expect a miracle. Do not expect a healing. Expect that the will of God will be done and be glad that it is done. And be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. If you understand this and believe this is going to save you from the snare of faith and fake healers. Who will teach you that it is normative to expect a miracle. I don't believe it. Except the miracle of the grace of God. Isn't that the greatest of all miracles? What is the greatest miracle? The birth of a child into the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches that during the last great Pentecost, during the loud cry, there will be miracles again. But don't think miracles normative or else you'll become very very cynical or very delusional there are only few miracles in the Bible and there are hundreds of years between the miracles now God is about to commence a great movement of righteousness and he works on the womb of this woman and she brings forth a child and we're going to read about this now. We're going to read about the family feud and the big fight that we're still paying for. Would you please come to Genesis 21 and verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Now before we go any further, let me talk a little bit about a weaning uh, it was a Jewish tradition that a child was about three years of age before he or she was weaned. And so 
Now Isaac is a little boy of three. And when they wean the child, it's a time of celebration. Verse 9, But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Here is the great original family feud. As Saddam Hussein would say, the mother of all battles. Did Sarah act righteously? No, she didn't. Petulantly? She was as much to blame as Abraham, even more so. She was the one who brought the woman to Abraham and said, Take her, take her. He urged it upon, she urged it upon her husband, and he did so. She wanted a child, even if it meant having a concubine in the place. And now when things don't work out as she wanted, then she turns on Hagar. How do you think Hagar must have felt? We read a lot about Sarah. We're sympathetic with her. I am, but think about Hagar. But God said, let her go. And there was a reason for this. Because God had his own child in place. And Ishmael could not be part of that. And because of the terrible bitterness in the, in the household, this, this awful jealousy and fighting, because of the mocking, God said, let her go. Sometimes it's better let a person who's filled with dissension to go. Hear what I'm saying? Sometimes it's better not to hold people who are mocking and who are fighting. It's better to say, let them go. So God says, let them go. Did you know that we're still paying the price for that? From Ishmael came the Arabs. From Isaac came the Jews. And the fight that started back there has never stopped. A 4,000 year old fight. The Middle East that is torn apart, a bleeding ulcer that costs Americans, you and me, because I pay taxes, billions of dollars every year to try to hold it together because people back there couldn't and wouldn't get along because they hadn't trusted God. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. The Bible says, fix it up now. But they didn't fix it up then. We can't fix it up now. Listen. They should have waited. Abraham and Sarah. They should have not, not have taken things into their own hands. Because of their lack of faith. Don't be critical of them. Because I'm sure there's nobody here as good as they were. 
It's easy for us to criticize Abraham and Sarah, but they were the very best that God could find. So you say, thank God we don't act like that. No, we don't. We worse. We're not as good as they are. They were the very best. Abraham was the friend of God. Bless your heart. He was a man who walked with God, the father of the faithful. And yet, he didn't have perfect faith. Yet in the New Testament, he's held out as the example of faith. And because he wouldn't wait for God and, be, and don't leave Sarah out of the equation because neither of them would wait for God, I'm telling you, my friend, they brought about a set of circumstances that we still have to pay for today. I would like to suggest to you today that many of our problems originate because we leave God out of our thinking. And we forget that God is able. But not only are we saved by faith, the Bible tells us we need to live by faith. It is one thing to come to Christ and be saved. It is another thing, my friend, to live by faith and to walk with God. Please read on, would you, in Genesis 21. Oh, I just love the book of Genesis and verses 14 and onwards 14 and onwards early the next morning Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy I think he would have been weeping she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. He was then 17 years of age. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy died. Watch the boy die. And as she sat there by, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called her Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Just think about these things. Here is the woman, Hagar, and she goes off by herself in the desert with a skin of water. They're dying of thirst. The water's run out. And she puts the boy under a bush, and she goes away, and she weeps. And the boy is crying too. And the Bible says, God heard the boy crying. He heard the mother crying too. You know what this tells me? The God whom we serve is a very loving, personal God who hears us when we cry. Isn't that a comfort to you? 
the next time you're discouraged and you're crying, God hears you crying. Isn't that something? God knows your name. Susie, he says. Susie K. What are you crying for? <laughs> God knows your name. This tells me that the God whom we serve is a personal loving God. And then he says to her, open your eyes and look. You listen to this, my friend. This is a great truth. The solution to her problem was already there, but her eyes were blinded by tears of anger and remorse. The solution to your problem, my friend, may be there. Open your eyes and you'll see the solution to your problem. Often we cannot see the solution to our problems because our eyes are filled with tears of hate and anger and vengeance. And God says, open your eyes and you will see a well of water. And so God says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And God takes care of her. And he becomes the father of the Arabs, a great nation whom we respect and appreciate. Now come to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. The story of the great test. For many years, for many years, I tell you, let me give you a little background to this chapter. Abraham and Sarah had prayed and hoped for a son. Abraham said on one occasion, Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. Then when he was 86 years of age, because he took things into his own hands at the urging of his sweet wife, he had a son whose name was Ishmael, who became the father of the Arabs. Another 14 years went by, a long time. 14 years, folks, is a long time. 14 years went by, and then they had laughter in the tents because Isaac was born. He laughs. What joy and rejoicing. In this chapter, chapter 22, Isaac is a young man of 20 years of age. I would ask you to think of the time when you were 20 years of age, if you can remember back that far. 20 years of age, when you're full of life and vim and vigor and vitality, Elder Matiko. Not as your grandfather says, whim, vigor and vitality but full of life, full of plans, full of hopes, and full of dreams, full of physical strength. So here we have a boy who's 20 years of age and a father who's well over 100. He is now, I think, 100, yes, 120 years. He's an old man. Now please notice the story. Genesis 21. Sometime later, God tested Abraham it doesn't say, my friend, that he tried, uh, that he tempted him. In the King James Version, it says tempted. It's a bad translation. God doesn't tempt anybody. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, here is an old man who's weathered many, many a storm, but the greatest test is now reserved for his old age. Notice what it says, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. 
Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Do you folks know where Mount Moriah is? What the significance of this is? Mount Moriah is where Solomon built the temple. It's the temple site today. Jerusalem. Just a stone's throw from Mount Moriah is a hill called Calvary. Did you know that? So God says, take your son and take him to Calvary. That's what he says. Take him to Golgotha. That's Mount Moriah, my friend. That is a fact. That's true. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now before you go any further, we've got to discuss a problem we can't gloss it over. Here God is telling his prophet to kill his son. Isn't this a problem to you? It is to me. Uh, Bob says, big time problem. Yes, it is a big time problem. Appar well, not apparently. We know that child sacrifice was common in these days. It was very common. It was like polygamy and slavery and polytheism. And apparently the only way that I can understand this is to accept the idea that Abraham didn't know that God had forbidden it. Or else he wouldn't have done it. He would have said, no, this is not God talking to me. Abraham did not know at this stage it was wrong. So even the best of the saints have got imperfect knowledge and poor theology. If you can give me a better explanation, then you tell me. But the commentaries I've read say that's the, that's the only explanation. He didn't know or else he wouldn't have done it. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. You notice what it says? He got up when? Early in the morning. You know why? Abraham was a man of obedience. And he didn't want to disturb Sarah. He didn't have the heart to go into Sarah and say, Sarah, this boy we prayed for for all of our lives is now going to die and I'm going to take his life. And so he doesn't tell Sarah. He slips out of the tent early in the morning. When Abraham is told to do something, he does it. What about you? What about me? When God tells his child to do something, we ought to say, yes, sir, I'm on my way. And we ought to be on our way early in the morning. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, before you go any further, have you ever had an experience like this? The third day, the third day, two long days, two sleepless nights. What a hell of a journey. Not able to tell your boy. Couldn't say goodbye to his wife. What a story this is. Verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. That's why he's called the father of the faithful. God had said this son is going to be the heir. How could he be the heir if he didn't live? The book of Hebrews says that Abraham believed in the resurrection. 
And he was going to take his life, but he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead and he was going to come back. That's faith. To believe the impossible when God has said it. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Like Jesus carrying his cross. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, sign of great respect, asking permission to speak. Permission granted, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now he speaks as a prophet. God will provide a lamb. He speaks as a prophet. He will provide a lamb today at this site at Calvary. Mount Moriah, because Mount Moriah is Calvary, my friend. It is the same place. I'm talking not symbolically, geographically. He says, God will provide a lamb. And 4,000 years later, the Lamb of God came there. And the Lamb of God carried the wood along the Via Dolorosa. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Mount Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. What sort of boy was this, I ask you? The boy could have got up and run away. But the boy had as much faith as his father. And he said, Father, if it is so, then let the will of God be fulfilled. Take the knife. That's why, my friend, these people are the illustrious giants of God, people of faith, not perfect, but the best. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. It seems as though God was anxious. It had gone far enough. The knife was up and the boy was lying with a heaving chest. And soon the knife was going to plunge into the heart of his son. And God now was anxious and God cried out, Abraham, Abraham, stop. But when Jesus hung on the cross, there was no cry, stop. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahweh will provide. And today it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided.
That mountain is Calvary. Geographically, Mount Moriah is Golgotha. And instead of the boy dying on the altar that day, a ram died. And 4,000 years later, instead of your dying, the Lamb of God died. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. All I needed for time and eternity was provided that day. Then it talks about their going home. I guess they laughed and sang all the way. Think of what you've heard here today. Think of old Abimelech. Think of Sarah, and Abraham, and Ahiram. And think of the truth that lying never does good to anybody. Think of some of these other stories you've heard about today. Ask yourself, how do these things really affect me? What do they do to me? Realize this, that only trouble and sorrow come when we rush ahead of God and blindly take things into our own hands. Think of the consequences of Sarah and Abraham and lack of faith. And realize that the billions we spend today in the Middle East is because of that quarrel. Think of the mess they made themselves. But most importantly, remember this, God will always provide for our needs. And in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he has provided our greatest need. And that is forgiveness of sins. And that's why we love the old hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. When we've been there a thousand years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Amen. Let me see the hands of those today who've got special needs and they'd like me to pray for them today. Lift up your hand if you've got a special need. Lift up your hands high. Just keep them up. Dear Father, See these people here with their needs today. Bless them. Help them to know it is true that on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. We thank you that on the mountain called Calvary, Mount Moriah, God provided for us a lamb. That we're not saved by our works, but saved by his works. But for the guilt of our sin, the nails drove in. When him they crucified, though the crown that he wore and the cross that he bore were his own, they were rightly ours. We thank you for amazing grace. 
touch these stubborn, hard, superficial hearts of ours. Help us, dear Father, to be healed of our sins today. We give them to you. Wash us in the blood that flowed on Mount Moriah and make us your people today. Lord, we are not a perfect people. That's very obvious. But help us to be a people who are earnest and sincere and who follow you. Bless these precious people here this day. In Jesus' name, amen.